We are in the book of Judges, chapter 20, and God willing, we will finish the book tonight. It is really uh, an appropriate time for this. I mean, not that there isn't an appropriate time, but it seems so spot on as we would expect from the Lord. I do find it interesting how the Lord had led us in Scripture as we continue through Matthew to a text on fear on Sunday. Where it wasn't about ignoring fear, denying fear, but choosing which fear. Either a selfish fear where we are in the center of the mix where we compare huge things or larger things to us. Or a godly fear where we compare everything to Him or He's in the center of the mix. And as we had looked at that text on Sunday, none of us could possibly have fathomed the atrocities that would take place in Belgium over the last couple of days. Where we lived in the central coast of California, the distance between our church and Los Angeles is the distance between London and Belgium. That puts things into perspective for me. It was a three-hour, four-hour with traffic drive. What we saw, of course, demanded us to refer back to that fear. Is God really bigger? Or are we in a place again where we feel hopeless? How do you fight an unfaced enemy? It only takes one person to blow themselves up to kill many people. And when these gentlemen, I'm using the term loosely, had walked in with their suitcases full of nails... Their intent was to inflict, of course, the greatest punishment they could on as many people as possible. What is interesting is, on these atrocities, the reactions people will give. The fear of some. I've had the chance to speak with several people today in London, in several portions of London, to be honest. And the insecurity and helplessness that one feels seems to pervade. The response and punishment is not unified, but the enemy, in essence of this, has unified people. The reason I say that is, that is exactly kind of where we're at in Judges in our final couple chapters. Judges ends with the most horrific story, perhaps, in all of Scripture aside from the cross. It shows us a nameless Levite, a nameless girl, and a nameless father. It is pretext and context with, in these days there was no king in Israel, And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What happens when you do something that is right in your own eyes that is opposite of what I see that is right in my own eyes? Who wins? Maybe no one. What God shows us is a time of spiritual free-for-all, pandemonium, where everyone decides their own right and wrong. And if that be the situation, what you will find is that the only thing that can unite people will be an enemy. And even then, rage will lead and confusion will follow. An unnamed Levite has an unnamed concubine. A concubine 
as a woman married or say, living with a man experiencing the conjugal rights of a marriage, but no covenant of marriage. Daniel put it beautifully last week, and I'm so thankful for his time and attention to the text while we were out getting permanent leave so we could stay with you. Today, to be honest, if you are living with someone and you are not married to them, but you're acting physically like you're married, the Bible might call you a concubine. Nowhere in Scripture does God condone concubines, promote, endorse, encourage, or even allow. God makes very clear commitment is first. Then comes intimacy. Never the other way around. And each of their stories becomes more and more clear as time moves on. The man goes from having no commitment to her in marriage to, as Daniel put it so poignantly last week, being very slow in getting her once she leaves. We, read, we don't read why she leaves. We do read she leaves and plays the harlot. And he is slow to get her, but he's quick to hand her over to be raped to death. And then he hacks her to pieces and sends parts of her throughout the tribes of Israel. Could there be a more horrific story God never condones it. He simply states it and says he sees it for what it is. But truth be told, he had been doing that to her internally for quite some time. Ripping her apart, part by part. That's what he was doing in ladies. That's the way it works. When a man seeks physical gratification from you without the commitment of marriage, the covenant of marriage, he's tearing you apart piece by piece cutting you into pieces. And I think if you're honest, you'll know it. The gal, she, we see in her story, her downward spiral. From being a concubine to playing the harlot to being totally controlled or overcome to dying. And might I say, this is the route of sexual sin. It starts with just what we might call casual interplay. With no commitment. And ultimately that becomes being much looser and wider with your choices. To being totally controlled to dying. The father we see also no commitment to her as he seems to show no sense of protection for his daughter who had seemed to run to him for care. And we look at that and we think, could things get any worse? They're so dark. They're so murky. They're so confusing. And let me warn you, in our own lives, when we seek to murk up, muck up, God's perfect truth, and we seem to somehow make it so that we can run the ship ourselves, we make up our own sense of right and wrong, our whole world becomes a hurricane. And you know it. It becomes so unclear and so confusing and so panic-stricken and so empty. It's as if we're being blown around a tornado internally and we have nothing to grab a hold of because the sure fire, or should, say, should I say the sure anchor of our soul is being ignored. Are we willing to look at Jesus and accept Him as our authority, as our Lord? The good news doesn't come this week, I'm sorry. 
It shows us what happens when you try to inflict right on others for their sense of right. And I remind you, God starts and ends this portion with everybody that was acting thought they what they were doing was right. That's a loose paraphrase, but that's what's being said. The guys in Gebeah that raped this girl to death, seeking to have intercourse with the men, thought that what they were doing was right in their own eyes. Because it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not just some. It doesn't say everyone did what was right in everyone else's eyes. It had gotten to the point, and I remind you, these are God's people we're talking about here. Not just a man with a concubine, but a Levite, a servant in the temple. And people who were calling on the name of the Lord, or at least they're supposed to be. The Gibeah that we're speaking of here is the hometown of Saul, the first, if you will, physical king of Israel. Ignoring, if you will, Gideon's son who declared himself king, but never really was one. This Gibeah and the Yabesh Gilead will seem directly related to that king. But here is the great news. In the midst of this murk and this filth and this nastiness and this just awful muck, God sets the scene for the most beautiful love story of the entire Old Testament. The story of Ruth. Because understand, it was in this context that the story of Ruth takes place. And can I say, even in the situation we are experiencing today, where everyone that I spoke with today, and I can't say that's a fair cross-section, no one said if, but just when it happens here. In the midst of what seems to be helpless and hopeless, murky senses of right and wrong, people doing things that are insane and being applauded for it, things that we could not at least intentionally fathom being a part of. And yet in the midst of this, God is, our hearts are crying out to God saying, God, give me something beautiful and pure and rich and right. In the midst of that horrible situation, a Ruth story is birthed. But tonight we see how it's darkest before dawn. The story left off with a callous Levite hacking a dead concubine into pieces, sending parts of it to all of the people of Israel. And that takes us now to Judges chapter 20, verse 1. Lord, continue to speak and minister and speak to our hearts what we need to hear tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So all the children of Israel, I'm reading from verse 1 here, came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Dan is the farthest north. If you remember, Dan seized property north, though they had been allotted property, if you will, sort of in the center, south-central They didn't like it and they went and took a helpless nation or helpless people that seemed to be living in safety up north. So they're the farthest north. Beersheba is the farthest south. So it's saying that all of the Israel from the farthest north to the farthest south gathered together. And those of Gilead, which are, if you will, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan that had settled on that side. It seemed like what happened is the entire nation was unified over a horrific act. But I remind you, the horrific act that united them was not the girl getting raped to death. It was the girl getting hacked and sent out. Because that's the only part they know this far. This place, Mizpah, you might remember, would be the place where Jacob meets with his father-in-law and says, this is the line, you don't go past it this way. I won't go past it that way. And we'll keep our eyes on each other because neither of us trust each other. Genesis 31:49. It is the place, by the way, where the people will confess their sin about wanting a king to be like the world in 1 Samuel 7, verses 5 and 6. And now they've gathered together because all they knew is this is horrific. 
Verse 2 said, And the leaders of all the people in the tribes of Israel presented themselves in assembly for, of, the, of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the children of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? The Levite has to explain why these people have received body parts. Verse 4 says, So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went to Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. Now, wait a minute. Did you notice God's view of their relationship was different than the man's view of their relationship? The moment they sought to be unified physically, God looked at them towards marriage. The way the man saw it was she was an easy experience. I think it's fascinating, I hope you do as well, in verse 4, that a Levite seems to have no shame nor stigma to actually saying he even has a concubine. Imagine one of you men in this room saying that. We're in a time of praise and we're here praising our King. Things are so beautiful and sweet and pure and one of you men stand up and say, I just want to thank you God for the girl I'm shacking up with right now. If I get tired of her, I'll boot her out and get myself a new model. Could you imagine how weird that would be? I know all you guys out here. I know that's not in your vocabulary. But for a man just to simply say this shows me how far the people of God had come, are gone. My concubine and I went to Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gebeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her into pieces, and set her throughout the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. The church is supposed to be the body of Christ. Only the body. We read in Ephesians that Jesus is the head. And that is important here. Because of your five senses you possess, how many of those senses belong to your head? Of the five, seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching. How many of those five belong on your head? All five. And if you're not, if you think you're missing something, I think all of you contain all of those faculties as far as I can tell. But from your neck down, how many of those senses still exist? Only one. The sense of feeling. It is Christ who is the head of the body. Where all five of those senses dwell, if you will. And if the church is decapitated from the headship of Christ, we will be forced to be led by our feelings. And it is amazing when you remove yourself from the Lordship of Christ, the headship of Jesus. How feeling becomes the only steering unit for a world out there that has not claimed Christ. Consider the fact that the advertising we see is always there to evoke some form of feeling, either a positive one or what would seem to be a positive to lead you forward, or something threatening to kind of get you in a place to move you away from something. For instance, have you seen the one, one of my favorites, although it's, I'm only saying that, if you will, sarcastically, is I remember right at the bus stop waiting for the 326, and there was a picture of Jimmy in a wheelchair. Johnny, sorry, in a wheelchair. And he has that look. Now, whether the actor or the, the model in the picture really is in a chair, I really don't know. 
But he has that look that you've seen many people master that are out there with a cup out. And it says at the bottom, go ahead, walk away. He wishes he could. And I think, wow, that's a low blow. And of course, the idea of it is, don't you feel bad for not texting three pounds to an institution you've never met or heard of before? Today, as I was walking by, uh, at this point, I was somewhere in between Holborn and St. Paul's. As I was walking and praying, I saw a homeless guy with a big sign that says, you know, give money here to help, you know, something like, you know, to help with, against global warming and Islamophobia. As if somehow I'm going to give this guy money and somehow from that everyone's not going to be afraid of Islam and the world's going to be, you know, no longer getting warmer or whatever the case would be. And of course, the idea of it's just as silly in the sense that I'm giving to someone that I have no concept what in the world he's going to do with in the same way that I'm going to text something for that purpose. Now look at I'm not saying don't give, but I'd say make sure that you know where you're giving and for what purpose. If we do it simply to ease a conscience, I think we're actually doing much of what we're saying here, which is being led by our feelings. But what happens is, is if we actually assume and surrender ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ, life becomes so much clearer. We know that. And we're no longer tossed around. The problem with our feelings are we could feel enormously strong in one direction and then in a couple of minutes feel very strong in the opposite direction. Feelings can do that. You could be really excited about something in the morning, see a second trailer of it by the afternoon, and be completely uninterested by the evening. But when Jesus tells you the truth, it's simply the truth. These people now, being led by their feelings, they've said, how do you get people who are now no longer under the lordship of, of the headship of God? Well, you send something really gross and nasty to them, and that actually pricks something in their heart. And they're like, well, what's this disgusting thing? And they've all gathered together. He tells the story now. They're driven by emotion. And can I say, emotions make a great ignition, a great spark plug, but they're a terrible steering wheel. They will get the car started, but they will never steer it properly. So all the people arose as one man, verse 8, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will anyone turn back to his house. But now this is the thing in which we will do to Gebeah. We will go against it by lot. I remind you there were 400,000 men to start with that are all ready with their swords. Verse 10 says, we will take 10 men out of every 100. That's 10% throughout all the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000 and 1,000 out of every 10,000 to make provision for the people that when they come to Gebeah in Benjamin, they may present all the vileness that they have done in Israel. Now, this should be a simple math. One-tenth, 10 out of every 100 so that would mean if 40,000 men, I'm sorry, 400,000 men have presented themselves, how many of them are going to be sent? Yep, I said it. From 400,000 to 40,000. So you have an army now of 40,000 men. 400,000 in the roster, but 40,000 that are being sent out. They're like, well, we can't just send them all to kill these guys. Let's just send 40,000. So all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, united as one man. Verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, Benjamin has a choice to make. Is Benjamin as a tribe going to side with the rest of Israel about this wrong? Or are they going to side with their fam here, people that are distant relatives that are in Gebeah, who have done this vile act? They have that choice to make. And I warn you, the Bible makes clear about the company you keep as well. Those that actually pull the heartstrings, sooner or later you're going to have to choose to stand with them or against them. In a case like this, and by the way, first and foremost, that's Jesus. You're aware of that, right? If you're really going to hand your life over to Him, you're going to stand with Him against everyone else. But the only problem there is that's actually right. Here, Benjamin has the choice to make, and unfortunately they side with Gebeah, who of course have done, in essence, the sequel to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now therefore, deliver up the perverted men who are in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. 
Benjamin now has chosen to stand with their family here, the brothers, than they are with standing for what is right. So instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities of Gebeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Do you remember how many people there were at this point ready to fight from the nation Israel? 40,000. Try that once so you can say it so you hear your own voice. 40,000. Did you get that? Wow, that was very whelming. Now let's take a look at Benjamin's side. And from the cities at that time, the children of Benjamin were 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gebeah, who numbered another 700 select men. So 700 select men plus 26,000 men is 26,700 men. So let's look at it this way. The nation Israel right now has taken a tenth of their army, 40,000, the nation Israel. Benjamin has 26,700. You'd think Israel has the advantage, don't you think? But it does say in regards to that among those were 700 men who were left-handed. Which, by the way, I have, is anyone else in here left-handed other than me? Because I just want you to know, here God says it's a really good thing. That's important because uh, the parochial school I went to said that was evil. As a matter of fact, even in Italian, the word for left is sinistra, from which we get sinister. You know, I just want you to know there's nothing evil about being left-handed. And it tells us here there were actually there were these men and they were actually really gifted athletes because of them being left-handed. So it says, side note, from the cities of Benjamin at the time, Benjamin circulated had these people. It says, verse 16, among these people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. These guys were dead-eye slingers. They were guys who, if you know, like David, who put his rock in the sling and then got... Goliath with it? Well, of course, that will come in 1 Samuel. Here, before that, we have these 700 men, and they were so good they could hit this thing. They were those guys that you could just have fun with, and they could do target practice, and they could just show off. So on one side, we have our, of our 400,000 available, we have 40,000. On the other side, we have 26,700, but 700 of those guys are these slingers. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered then four. 100,000 men who drew the sword. That's how many were available. All these were men of war. Verse 18. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. Interesting. We hadn't seen that yet in this book. It's the first time where we're actually seeing people really seek God at his house. And this is the end of the book, I remind you. And they said, which of us shall go up first and battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. By the way, that's interesting because Judah seems to be pretty regularly the first. When the camp was broken up into standards and tribes in the wilderness, it was Judah who would break camp first and lead. That's Numbers 2, verse 9. But perhaps what we would recognize is at the beginning of the book of Judges, when the battles were to take place, they asked, who will lead us in the battle? Judah was chosen in the first two verses of this book. We're bookending Judah leading, which of course prepares us for the coming king who must come from the tribe of Judah. We know him to be Jesus. So, Judah shall come first. So the children of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gebeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gebeah. They're all ready to fight. Then the children of Benjamin came out against Gebeah. And on that day cut down to the ground, 22,000 men of the Israelites. Now, how many men did we start with in Israel? 40,000. Of the 40,000, let's see how well you can do this in your head, or I'm just going to make your heads explode. Of the 40,000, 22,000 died. How many are left? 18,000. Excellent. We started with 40,000. We're down to 18,000. Do we read how many Benjamites died? We don't. That's going to be important here in a moment. So the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves again, formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Verse 23, Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked the counsel of the Lord and said, Shall I again draw near to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And if they said, And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. How many were left? Do you remember? 18,000. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. Verse 25. And Benjamin went out against 
them at Gebeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. How many are left? None. Did you get that? They started with 40,000. Of the 40,000, how many are left? Nada. Not a one. Notice, by the way, what it's going to say next, and then we'll bring that to point. Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Don't miss this. Throughout Scripture, what we find is it's a really simple standard. And I don't think it's something that even, to be honest, is just entirely and uniquely biblical. And it's simply this. A half-hearted effort bears forth a half-hearted result. That should only make sense. If you put half of your heart into it, you're only going to get a half-hearted product. Interesting, in the book of 2 Kings, by the way, for what it's worth, chapter 13, Elisha is actually quite ill, but he is speaking to the king. And as he does, he knows the battle is going to be taken to Syria. The Syrians, by the way, are to feck. They are going to actually come after them. And he tells the king, I want you to go and take a take an arrow and put it in your, in your bow. And he does. Elisha comes along. This is Elisha, the second guy, Elishama. And he goes and he pulls it and shoots it out. And he says, that's what you're going to do with Syria. And he goes, now take those arrows and bang them on the ground. And the king just kind of goes and he's like, eh, this is stupid kind of thing. And he bangs it three times and that's it. And Elishama just goes mental. He looks at the king and he's like, what are you doing? And you can see the king going, well, what do you mean? What am I doing? He's like, you know, if you had really done this with any form of effort, you would have destroyed your enemy. But because you just kind of threw a half-hearted bang on the ground because it seemed kind of silly kind of thing, as a result of that, you're, going to, you're not going to be able to wipe them out. You'll have three campaigns like the three times you did it, and you'll have victory in those, and then after that, you're still going to have trouble. And I wonder how many things we are actually saying we're struggling with, but we're not really willing to put everything into it to see it come down. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, I really think this thing is really bothering me. It's really challenging me, and I, I feel really weak and controlled by it. But, you know, I'm really not going to do what is necessary to shut it out of my life and seek the Lord on it. But instead, I'm going to be like, well, okay, I, okay, so I get drunk all the time. Maybe I'll just try to cut it down to a couple beers versus cutting it out of your life completely. It's just, you know, an addiction to Internet pornography, but I'm not going to get a filter or any form of challenge or any form of accountability program, because after all, that might slow my computer down. And the question is, how hard, how deeply do you want to be free? And you realize half-hearted effort really bears forth half-hearted product. And we kind of look and we're like, well, I kind of tried that and it didn't really work out. Yeah, but did you put anything into it? Now, the good news is Jesus never gave us half-hearted. Have you noticed that? He gave us everything. And we're told whatever we do, we are to do wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. There's nothing we're supposed to do halfway. That could really irritate those who, by the way, just want to do whatever it takes to get it done versus those who really take delight in doing it well. But what God really wants is, look at if it's for you, I really want it to bear forth wholehearted fruit. I want it to say, God, I want to give you everything. There's the idea. If you remember, when Israel first came into the Promised Land, they took on Jericho and God gave them a great victory. And then there was this like little place called Ai. We like to call it Ai to make it sound larger, but it's just Ai. It's kind of like a Scot saying yes. It's Ai. And with that, they're like, well, you know, they're really not that many people. Why don't we just toss a couple thousand at them and see what happens? And they get beat. And they're like, man, what do we do now? And they're like, look it. Why would we take... A small amount of people, if something is an enemy, why actually just bring out part of your team to it? Why not go after it with everything? And the Lord has a message for every one of us in this. And when something is wrong in your life, go after it with everything. Don't just kind of play around with it and think it's going to be okay. Those things that destroy you are not to be flirted with. 
So whether that's Joshua chapter 7 with the story of Ai, or whether it's the king we see with Elisha, you realize God takes this stuff very seriously. So, all the children now, after a second day, the 40,000 they sent out, 40,000 of them didn't come home. Then all the children of Israel then went up, came to the house and wept. Did you notice what happened as a result of that? said, man, we better go after this with everything. And, and by the way, you know this is the problem. If somebody comes here and does something just wicked and horrible, and they want to not, we're not talking about something, they've done something stupid and they want to repent and they want to see the cleansing of Christ. Hey, in such a case, don't we want to see God do that? Well, we're talking about the person who's actually calling themselves a Christian and living in a lifestyle that God tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 is contrary to that. Completely contrary. And, what and look, at, there's one thing to say, hey, this is wrong and I, want it, and I want to see a change. Another thing to say, well, I'm not even sure this is wrong. I'm just going to keep doing it regardless of what you think. Paul got to the point of saying in 1 Corinthians, hand that person over to Satan. The idea of it is, look, if they want to try to get one foot of security in the church and one foot out there in the world, if they really want to play both sides, let them have enough of that and when they're done, let them come here. But repentant. Now, the good news is Paul didn't do that just, by the way, though he wanted to see the church clean. And though he wanted to see that person repent, he didn't just do it to punish the guy. He did it so that the guy could actually be purged. And what we find by 2 Corinthians is the guy has come back and he's being restored. So it worked. But the problem with us today is if somebody were to do something like that here, when we said, you know what, until you really get that settled, that you're willing to confess that that's wrong and actually deal with it, they'll just go to the next church. And they'll find sooner or later a church that will applaud their behavior, the very behavior that clearly, according to Scripture, says is not to be anything but challenged. And there becomes the problem. And we even have the advent now with the Internet that no matter what you want to do, somebody on the Internet by this point has written an article telling you it's okay. And that just makes it contrary. There's no, uni there's no unity in the body of Christ in this. Here, the good news is the people have wept. What it took, unfortunately, was a tremendous defeat for that to happen. I wonder if that's what it'll take for us as the body of Christ in Mass. So, they fasted until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 27. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So that makes it, by the way, Aaron's grandson stood there before it these days saying, shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin or shall I stop? I mean, I'm running out of guys here. And the Lord said, go up tomorrow. I will deliver you in your hand. But what he was waiting for, what God was waiting for, was for us to be all in. Once we were all in, it says the men of Israel set an ambush all around Gebeah. By the way, interesting, the word for ambush in Hebrew is Arab for what it's worth. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gebeah as the other times. This time, of course, we've got now, we can assume by this point, we have a, an army now of 360,000 men. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel, the other to Gebeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. The children of Benjamin said, they're defeated before us like all the other times, just as, as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee, draw them away from this city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from the place, put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar, which means master of the palm trees. Then Israel, Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plains of Geba. Ten thousand select men from Israel came against Gibeah. And the battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know the disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites, all who drew the sword. I remind you, there was 26,700 to start with. We can assume maybe in the first two days a thousand were killed. Makes the math quite simple at this point. That will leave 600 left. The children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gebeah. 
And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gebeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up in the city. Once you set the city on fire, it tends to send out smoke. And the men of Israel would turn in battle. Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, as we know. They said, surely their defeated force is the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them. And there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked. For they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs upon the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them. And whoever came out of the cities, came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gebeah toward the east. All 18,000 of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. And they came down five, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways and pursued them relentlessly up to, to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. That's how they get the number 25,000. So all the men of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. Interesting. He says, now these were the ones, the ones who died were the men of valor. Then there are these 600 guys that ran. And do you think what God's actually saying is the guys who ran really weren't men of valor? Is that what he's saying? But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. And they stayed in the rock of Rimon for four months. The men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin, struck them with the edge of the sword from every city, man and beast, all were found. They set fire to the cities that they came to. Now, that means at this particular moment, as we're about to run, the, and obviously things are picking up here because the story's kind of working its way out. Now, please hear me in this. At this point, what we have then is the tribe of Benjamin basically equates to 600 guys. That's it. Now, when we're looking at a nation of 12 tribes that's somewhere around two, now at this point, maybe 5 million people, 600 guys for one of the 12 tribes should sound startlingly small. And that's exactly what happens is in the fit of rage, you go and you take everything down and then you kind of come to after that and realize when you're like no longer green and your shirt's not ripped off of you because you stopped being the Hulk. My goodness, what have I done? This is what happens when we're led by our emotions. Now, the men of Israel, verse one of the last chapter, had sworn an oath to Mizpah, saying none of us will give his daughter to uh, to Benjamin as a wife. So they looked at everyone and gone, well, no one's going to take they can't. We can't give our daughters to Benjamin because they're clearly in, in the wrong here and they're our enemy. Then the people came to the house of God, remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that day that there should be one tribe missing? They've been asking for victory. They got victory. And now they're like, God, now that you've given us victory, we see what kind of victory this is. It's still a defeat. So it was in the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly of the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Now here's our problem. We're looking, we're going, well, we can't, now that we've kind of killed everybody, we can't really kind of let the nation, this tribe die. But all we have are 600 guys. We don't even have Benjamite women. They killed all of them. So it's like, how do we keep the Benjamites alive? Well, we have to give them girls for them to populate the Benjamites again. But the problem is we all looked around and said, none of us, are, no, we're not giving our daughters to those guys. And this is what happens when everyone's making up their right. When they make up their right and wrong, they kind of look. And then sooner or later, you kind of realize you're just kind of making it up as you go along. And as you're making it up, as you go along, you're like, well, okay, let's do this. No, we're never going to give our daughters. Now what do you do? We can't give our daughters to these guys because we made an oath, but we can't just let that tribe die off. And 600 guys without women, they're not going to go any farther. So what do we do? I got it. Well, we said that if if somebody didn't come to battle, we'd kill them. Is there any place that didn't come to battle? There was that place, Yabesh Gilead. They never came to battle. I know what we'll do. Let's just kill everyone in Yabesh Gilead except for the virgins 
and then we'll just give them. They're not our daughters, and we'll just give them to the guys. Do you see how insane this gets? Have you ever read the news sometimes and you see how someone does something nonsense and it creates a problem, and what they do is they create greater nonsense to solve the problem? Like, how does this work? Here's the strange thing. Notice, even in all of this, there's still this sense of honor. We can't go back on our oath. We can't give our daughters because we said we wouldn't. And we're going to be men of our word because we're men of noble mindset. But in the end of it all, you're acting like a crazy person. So what we really have to do is we have to go and murder a whole town of people so that if we murder the whole town and find the, you know, the virgins... Now, I don't know about you. I mean, forgive me. I don't want to be too colorful here in this. But imagine you kind of open the house and you're kind of like, okay, uh, all the virgins, come on over here. Because we're going to kill everyone else. Now, which one of you doesn't go, oh, I just discovered I'm a virgin again. And go over there just to not die. Well, how many are we shooting for? How many virgins are they trying to get out of this town? You tell me. How many? 600. Because there's 600 guys. Now, we don't read, by the way, this is 600, ladies, for what it's worth. We don't read this as 600 really good-looking Channing Tatumish or whatever guys hiding in the Rock of Rimmon. What kind of guys do you think run and hide in the rocks? I just wanted you to kind of consider. I'm kind of guessing the scared, the old, the pudgy, whatever. The only, I mean, I'm just kind of painting a picture. Those are the ones that are left. These are the scared men that are now hiding in the rocks. And we're like, we need to get them some girls. Well... Verse 8, they said, well, where is there from the tribes of Israel? They didn't come up to Mizpah to the Lord. In fact, no one had come up to the camp from Yabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation set out from there. Twelve thousand of their most valiant men commanded them, saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is a thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male. And every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. Dang it. They got two-thirds of the way there. They still had, How many guys are left without a girl? 200. What do you tell them? Hey, chubby, uh, sorry, but we really don't have anyone for you. They're like, well, this isn't good enough. They brought them to the camp of Shiloh. Which is in the land of Canaan. I remind you, this is where the, the temple or the tabernacle is. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and announced peace to them. Hey, you guys, we're not going to kill you anymore. We recognize you at the rock of Rimon. You think you're hiding. We know you're there. So Benjamin came back at that time, and he gave them the women whom they had saved the light of the women of Yabesh Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them. So imagine, you guys are like, oh, don't worry, we've got some girls for you. And probably the faster guys to the camp were the ones that got their girls, but there's 200 left. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, well, what should we do for the wives of those who remain since the women of Benjamin must um, have been destroyed? And they said, well, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. And it's interesting, they are rewarding, of course, the guys who were hiding that fled the battle. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters. Remember, we said we won't do that. For the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, Cursed be the one who gives his wife to Benjamin. And we're going to be men who stand on our word, even though we're acting like crazy people. Even though we being cray-cray. Then they said, in fact, I think, and then imagine somebody, imagine we're all sitting here going, man, there's, this, there's no other option. And somebody among the group comes up with this idea. They said, well, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. Remember, that's where the tabernacle is. North of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem in the south of Lebanon. Therefore, they instructed the children and said, well, now listen. Hmm. I think I know what we could do. They instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, now go, lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch himself a lot for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. And it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, that we shall say to them, Be kind to them for our sakes. 
because we did not take a wife from any of us, uh, for any of them in the war. For it is not as though that you had given the women to them at this time, making yourself guilty of your oath. Now, listen to this crazy idea. While we can't give our daughters as, as brides to them, so the only thing left is for them to kidnap our daughters, because then we technically didn't give them. Now, I don't want to get off on this whole see what happens when a bunch of girls get together and dance thing, because that's not it at all. But this is a feast. Somewhere at the feast, there should be great joy. But now they've set up the kidnapping coup for couples. It's kind of what we think about it. And they tell the guys, hey, look, it, I know that the, the 200 of you really don't have a girl. So this is what's going to happen. These girls are going to dance and then just go get yourself one. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some part of me, as, as a guy that seeks to be a gentleman, I just can't see how grabbing a girl and running off with her is going to make me happy for the rest of my life with this girl being married to her. You can see her going, wow, things were fine until you kidnapped me. But this is what happens when we cease to let God make the rules. As we get to this point where we try to figure out how to not back ourselves into a corner, we've got this vow, we've got this idea, we're going to keep our word because we're going to be decent guys that make up our own rules. And in the end of it all, what we've got is murder, kidnap. I mean, think about this is what, and this is okay. Because somehow we kept our word and we were noble for doing that. And you can see, God's like, let me just show you how crazy it gets when you actually think you should make up your own rules. And you know that's what we live in right now. We live in this idea where, and you're part of me for saying it's like, you know of stories where men have raped and killed and they've served two years in the penitentiary for it. But other people have been caught with marijuana. And I'm saying that's still a drug and I'm saying that's still illegal. But it's like, and, and it's like, you'll find people that are actually in there longer for tax evasion. And, it, and it's not like, hey, okay, the guy broke the laws, but there's something weird to me when a human life suffers and dies, and somehow the person who did that pays less than somebody who just didn't pay the government a certain amount of money. Now, look, they both should pay their, their price. But something, what it shows is that money seems to be more important than people, is what that seems to show. And this is what happens. is like, well, well, what part of that relates more to me? If you take all the money, I'm really affected. If you kill somebody I'm never going to meet, I'm really not affected by that. And that's the way that kind of looks. So understand what God is showing us is He's taken us from the wind to the storm to the hurricane of nonsense. He goes, this is how crazy it gets. Verse 23, And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced whom they caught. Now, I don't know. Which ones did they catch? Were there other ones? Could the girls run? And if so, were the quicker ones not caught? Are they, you know, I mean, it doesn't appear to me that the girls were forewarned that they were going to get nabbed. Did you notice that? So they're like, la, 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 and off they go. They took wives from them. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities who dwelt in them. Imagine saying, Dad, I've just been kidnapped. And Dad's like, yeah, I know. I know. By the way, congratulations on your wedding. What a horrible thing. So the children of Israel departed from there. At that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And he ends it with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The way this book ends is a feast that should have been a celebration to God became a place of kidnapping so that people could, so that a tribe doesn't die. What it should have been, by the way, should never have happened. Gebeah should never have happened. But once Gebeah did happen, the whole nation, including all of Benjamin, should have gone against those who had committed the crime, and that would have been the end of the story. And we would have all taken that for warning, note to self, don't do that, because this is what happens. But the moment we run to the aid of a wrong like that, it creates this strange civil war. And when it creates a strange civil war, you don't even know who's right and who's wrong anymore. And by the time you're done, even those who appear to be right are creating these rules to allow kidnapping 
daughter napping. Now, I don't know about you, but I tell you what, that would be the one night I look at my kids and go, kids, you ain't dancing tonight. You are not going out. Wouldn't you think if they came up with that conclusion that if you were a father, you would look and go, unless you want to be kidnapped tonight, stay home or at least don't dance. But I don't even see that among the fathers. And as a father, that part just doesn't make sense to me. Unless they're like, boy, I really need her out of the house. Honey, you should go out dancing tonight. Now, you know, I don't have that in my heart. And I remind you as we bring this to close, God says this is what it looks like when people remove themselves from the Lordship of God. Interesting. Because in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, when God talks about bringing revival back to His people, He promises that will bring the hearts of the fathers back to their children and children to their fathers. He says, you know what revival will start to look like when you really see me be the Lord I should be among my people? You'll start to see real fathers really love their children and children respond likely in like manner. And I think if the church could show that, godly fathers. I wish we could say that for the entire church. But again, we're not talking about those who have yet claimed Christ who are sniffing the edges. We're talking about those who have made the claim and profess it. Here's the good news. That there is a Father who is committed. And that Father loves you. And He loves you so much that He was willing to let His own Son die so that He could adopt you. So that you could be His. You were not born a child of God. You were born a child of wrath just like me. Nowhere in Scriptures it say we were all just nice people and somewhere we woke up and decided to be nasty. We were born sinful, born in iniquity, and born children of wrath. But God adopts out of that. But for that to happen, that wrath must be punished and thus sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for that. So that all of your and my sins could be punished. All of our iniquity properly handled. All of our debts paid. So that we could rightly receive the love of a Father who wants us to take us as His own. The love of the Father will always be to His children. But God help us that the love of the children would be to their Father, me included. And tonight, we seek to say yes to this Jesus. His payment for our sins. His resurrection. But understand, the death of Jesus is only half the story. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, if you just confess Jesus as your Savior, you're covered. What it does say is, if we're willing to to believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, but to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We have to be willing to let Him be Lord. Not just Savior. We can't just say, Jesus, you can serve me for the rest of eternity. Let's start with getting my sin and hell taken care of. And then from there, you can just give me more stuff. The death of Jesus on the cross showed he paid for our sins, but his resurrection demands for him to be Lord of our new life. And if we let Jesus be the Lord of our new life, the book of Judges will not be ours. But rather instead... We will live the kind of life that should celebrate this instead. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray tonight for every one of us, myself included, that tonight we would turn to you with all of our hearts and say, yes, Jesus, be not just the Savior of my life, but be the Lord. You have a right to make all of the laws, all of the rules, And you call me to obey, to follow. You've not kidnapped me. You've not stolen me. You have come in, vanquished the strong man that stood before, and rescued me 
But you gave me a choice to say yes. And I say yes. Not just to the rescue from my own peril, being a slave to my own sin, but also to allow you to be the Lord of my life like you demand. And I thank you that even in the darkest of times, the greatest of love can be demonstrated. And I praise you for the privilege of being able to even be offered the opportunity to say yes to you. So I say yes to you, declaring Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I say, have me now. I am yours. I belong to you. Be my Father as you've paid for me with your Son. Be my Father as you've given me not the spirit of fear or bondage, but rather of adoption by which I cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. Tonight I say I'm yours. Have me now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.